I'm your host Helen Douthwit-Teasdale and welcome to Brass Evolution, a podcast where we explore the rich culture and history of the brass banding world. This week I'm chatting to Gavin Dixon about his research into the G-trombone. But first, let's hear the kid shifter in action. Gavin, welcome to the podcast. For those who don't know you, could you give us a brief introduction to yourself? Hi, Helen, and uh, thanks for the introduction. So, yes, my name is Gavin Dixon. I'm a writer. I write about classical music from a range of perspectives, um, and I've various specialisms, uh, only one of which we'll be talking about today. But uh, the important thing, I think, is that I came to music uh, via the trombone. I started playing the trombone when I was about 12. I moved to the bass trombone. It's about fifteen. Is that it's, you went to the dark side very young? Uh, so yeah, <laughs> yes. And I was I was a specialist from then on, um, better or worse. But yeah, anyway, that was part of um, a broader interest in music that developed. Then I did a degree in Cardiff and a master's. Then I did a PhD at Goldsmiths. That was on the music of Alfred Schnitzker. 20th century Russian composer. And I still have a, a, a research interest in Schnitzker's music. I just, oh, first plug of the first plug of this session. Yep, I that's just, fine, go for it. <laughs> good, good. I just published a book about uh, Schnitzker's music called The Routledge Handbook to the Music of Alfred Schnitzker. That was 2001. But yeah, so that my so I finished my studies in 2007, and my first proper job after that was as a curator of musical instruments at the Horniman Museum in London. And this is where I got uh, got interested in the history of the trombone and brass instrument history and all that sort of thing. So I hope we'll be talking about today. Sure. And yeah, so I've been associated with the Hornman Museum on and off pretty much since then. So about fifteen years. However, I my formal full time work there um, only went up to about two thousand and ten, and after that, I became a freelance music journalist. Uh, writing for classical music magazines in Britain, America and Australia. And I'm now the uh, reviews editor of Gramophone magazine. So that's my day job. And I'm still um, I'm still interested. I still have research interests in the trombone, in Schnitke and various other things. But they're kind of weekend activities now. So. Yeah, <laughs> I can understand it. I feel like you're quite, quite a busy guy. So um completely appreciate that. Linking back to the subject of our podcast today, the G trombone, was it because of you were a trombone player and a bass trombone player? Is that how you got into the research of the G trombone? How did you get into this? Such a, it's quite a strange instrument. Let's be honest to ourselves. How did you come about this, and why did you start the research in the first place? Well, isn't it a strange instrument? I mean, if we'd been talking fifty years ago, we might we might not see it that way. Yeah? But yeah, firstly, yes, the fact that I play or played the bass trombone, something I have to admit now is that I'm very much lapsed and I haven't picked it up in years. And I apologise to all the uh, all the players out there for that. But um, but yeah, so my background in the trombone was 
the starting point. But yeah, so basically what happened was when I went to the Horniman in 2007. So the Horniman, it's uh, if you don't if you don't know it, I'd recommend I recommend a visit if ever you're in South London. It has the biggest collection of musical instruments in the country. It also has the most diverse uh, collection of musical instruments. So the number of different directions that uh, research on that collection can go in is fantastic. But yeah, uh, that was 2007. Just a few years before that, I think in 2004, the museum had made a major acquisition of the collection, uh, well, the so-called Booty and Hawks collection. Yeah. And what had happened was, I'm sure uh, many in the brass band world will remember this little saga, but uh, Booty and Hawks... Uh, musical instrument production in this country kind of ground to a halt in the early 2000s and it was a sort of a, a painfully slow process um, of uh, sellouts and uh, yeah. gradually closing things down but yeah so there had been a the fact yeah the factory in Edgware which had been operating since the early 20th century uh, before Boozing Hawks even existed they had to sell that off and they they went they they spent a few years in in a trading estate in Watford and that was the sort right. of the very end of musical instrument production at Boozing Hawks, but yeah. So when the Edgware factory closed down, there'd been a museum there, and it was a museum of it had originally been the sort of research collection for the uh, instrument designers at Boozing Hawks, okay. and indeed uh, Boozy and Co going right back to uh, the nineteenth century. By the end, it was basically part of, part of the tour when you went to see musical instruments being right. made. This was, yeah. this was the sort of a, the, the thing towards the end of the tour. But anyway, so when the uh, company was being broken up, the Horniman put in a successful bid for this collection. The National Lottery assisted financially. Bradley Strauschen was the uh, curator at the at the Horniman who oversaw all that. So I should get, I should give her a yep. nod here. But also, from a research point of view, an inter- an equally interesting aspect of this acquisition was that the production records from the Edgware factory were also acquired, and are now housed at the Horniman Library. And these Boosey and Hawks was founded in 1930 by the merger of uh, Boozy and Co and Hawks and Son. Mm-hmm. They called it a merger. Actually, uh, Boozy bought Hawks. It, was, it wasn't equal at all. And this is, this is demonstrated in the production records because Boozy uh, serial numbers continued yeah. uh, from before 1930 into the Boozy and Hawks era. But anyway, the result was that this, these production records uh, started in about the 1860s, I think, and go right up to the 1990s, so a uh, complete run of every in- every brass and woodwind instrument that was made there. So I got there, and I I had a, there was a research element to uh, my uh, my job. I was looking for a, a, a subject to research, and this looked like a very a very nice little research project. So initially, my idea was to look at the production records and just look at the end of the G-based trombone. So basically, it's a story of a British instrument, an almost uniquely British instrument mm-hmm. that uh, was only played in Britain, well, ever really, but it had sort of, uh, one of the very few um, sort of anomalies like that and national tradition that had continued yeah. into the twentieth half, tw- second half of the 20th century. And that gradually, and it, but the the way that it died out was very, very gradual, especially in the brass band movement, uh, as it was replaced by the B flat F, 
uh, bass trombone. So yeah, my idea was to chart that just through the production records to see if I could see the gradual decline of G mm-hmm. bass trombone manufacture at Boozy and Hawks and the gradual ascent of B flat F bass trombones. One of the reasons I thought that was so uh, that would have been so indicative was that by the end of the Second World War, Boozy and Hawks pretty much had a monopoly on brass instrument manufacture in this country. So basically, simplifying a little bit, but what was in these books was basically the history of the entire brass instrument production in the whole country and that's uh, in over that period so yeah i um i picked um this period from 1950 to 1980 and that was yeah and that was the start of it yeah so i think there's several g-based trombones in the boozy hawks collection at right. the Horniman. several bass trom- or trombone historians who i knew because of their connections with the museum yeah, sure. and yeah and so basically the um, I wrote I wrote an article which we'll, uh, which we'll get onto and used the basically these sort of statistical research from what was in these records as the starting point, but then embroidered a sort of hopefully a sort of social history around this and looks at the separate developments in the orchestral world and the brass band world and looks at the surviving instruments and yeah just plotted that history of the, yeah what happened over that period of time over that 30 years and also looked at how the that that switch from the g based trombone to the b flat f based trombone was indicative of broader changes in brass instrument manufacture and in the instruments that were being used in orchestras and brass bands at the time it's just so fascinating that you've normally we sort of have instruments in collections in isolation and we don't have the historical records and these production records that go alongside them. So the fact that you had access to that wealth of knowledge is just amazing and probably very helpful to sort of piece together the puzzle as as it were. <laughs> what are the origins of the G trombone? Because my <laughs> where did it come from? Because in my my very sort of limited knowledge, I've always I, I've go back even further to things like sackbuts and F, things like this. Are they the precursors to the G trombone? Or do we know where it comes from at all? No, we don't know where it comes from at all, is the short answer. I, yeah, I will say before I start before I start reading out my own speculations. <laughs> I, uh, Disclaimer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That what this was again was one of the reasons that I picked a period beginning in 1950 because it obviously existed then. People remember it then. Yep. You know, the um, everything before that was not really the area of uh, research for this project. Sure. Nevertheless, all right, well, let's go back to the Renaissance. Why not? <laughs> sure. I mean, we don't have to go back there, but that's yeah, just... Let's start, it's, let's let's start you can, the... There's no doubt between the similarities between a handled bass trombone and, a, yeah, exactly, and, the, and obviously exactly. the G trombone, which has the handle as well. So. All right. Well, no, I mean, if we look at the sort of com- consorts of trombones in yep. the uh, 16th and 17th century, typically you'll have three sizes that correspond to essentially today to our alto tenor and bass. Yep. So in the Renaissance consort that had been a cornet, you know, the black banana, that would have been the soprano instrument. Yep. Then these three sizes of trombone would have been the alto tenor and bass. And they were all different sizes. And yeah, I mean, today we talk about E flat, B flat, and F nominally. Maybe, uh, yeah. But the they they were all a bit variable, plus or right. minus a, a semitone, and then you get into different pitch pitch uh, conventions yeah, sure, anyway. Yeah, sure. uh, but anyway, the point is that the bass instrument of that group was a longer instrument than the tenor, usually in F on the consonants. But by the 
early, or let's say, let's say the second quarter of the 19th century, there was certainly, we certainly know there was a G-based trombone in Britain and that it was pretty much distinctive to Britain. There are also, and um, we know this because of surviving examples of the instruments, often tenor trombones in Britain were in C rather than in B flat. So the G-based trombone would be the sort of fifth equivalent, you know, the sort of quinta version of that. So there is some logic to that. Everything else that I've heard is speculation, but there's one one nice story, and this probably is more to do with its survival than its its origin, is that the trombones lead a marching band and um, the G-bass trombone, it's got a long slide, it's got that handle, and if you're in the typical march uh, keys, like A-flat, E-flat, the, ba- the G-bass trombone, it doesn't really suit those keys, so it's going to to get to the tonic and dominance, it's going to have to be moving the slide between first yep. and seventh. <laughs> so just the visual aspects of all that is the uh, you know, a, a possible reason for it, the attraction. And yeah, I should say there's something that came up again and again when I um, looked into brass band, let's let's say traditionalists defending the uh, survival of the G-based trombone, despite the fact nobody else anywhere in the world no. is playing anything like it, was the handle, the slide handle. Because, yeah, I, I mean, with all these uh, bass trombones from the Renaissance onwards had this slide handle. And, yeah, I, the F-based trombone survived into the late 19th century on the continent. In, in, even further, uh, Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra, famous F, F trom, F-based trombone slide that nobody knows what to do with anymore. <laughs> sure. uh, yeah, so, I, I mean... Bartok wrote it in New York where nobody was playing those instruments, but they must have been playing them in Budapest for him to... So, so yeah, the F did... F-based trombone did continue on the continent, but not, not to the same extent, I don't think. But, yeah, the, the point is this handle. You could always you could always see the, the G-based trombone because it was taller than the others and it had this handle and the handle was such an iconic thing. And, yeah, so when it came to the, the decline of the instruments and the uh, players and conductors uh, railing against interna- internationalization railing against the foreign b flats instrument coming in the fact that the b flat instrument didn't have the handle that was the, one of the things that really comes up again and again yeah it's it's so strange isn't it it's sort of so tra- entrenched and traditional and obviously the title of this podcast episode is going to be the kid shifter and obviously there's <laughs> the colloquialisms for the gd based trombone like the kid shifter so obviously brass band marching especially in northern england whit friday marches i've also heard it called the hadaway comeback which in a geordie dialect is basically fling the instrument <laughs> handle down it hands away and then it comes back. So obviously there's there's something um, iconic about this yeah, very sort of yeah, distinct yeah. long slide with the handle. Yeah. Well, now, now I come to think of it, I, so if, I mean, the G, so in, um, orchestras in the early 20th century adopted a G trombone with a valve to uh, C, it must be, is it, or to D. But anyway, so a, a valve, which, like the modern bass trombone, meant that you didn't yeah. have to use the, the lower positions. But brass bands did not, generally. They used the uh, G-bass trombone without the valve. So, in a sense, the move from a straight D to a B-flat F 
it isn't even it isn't even just that the B flat F is a shorter, wider bore instrument. It's the fact that it's got that valve, so you don't need to go down to sixth or seventh position. And yeah, as you say, it's a it's a visual thing, you know. So there's a theatrical element to the moving the slide. Yeah, like that, maybe so. not so much necessary for your your orchestral playing, but obviously for the marching or the brass band. <laughs> I mean, we've touched on this slightly, but why did it go out of fashion? Yeah, all right. Well, firstly, the broader picture is. Just a movement away from British designs towards international designs, essentially. And this isn't just the trombone. It's every instrument of the brass band. It's every woodwind and brass instrument of the orchestra, I think. I mean, with the um, historical, historically informed movement, we now have both arguments in play because bigger... Well, the reason why international designs came in was because... You could make nicer sounds easier. There is an argument about mass mass production, and this was an argument. This yeah. was when um, American design started coming in. This was one of the things that traditionalists railed against. The other, the counter argument is that there's a distinctive sound to the sure, British instruments, yeah. and basically we're talking about a move from narrower bore instruments with smaller bells, shallower cups, and that sort of thing, to wider bore instruments. So yeah, I mean the G trombone always had a narrower bore than the B-flat bass trombone. To be honest, I don't know much about brass bands, but certainly orchestras, just the volume of orchestras got louder. Yeah. Because, and this, uh, because when all the woodwinds and brass instruments, uh, technological advances were making it, making them able to play louder. The same is true of string instruments, the modifications of string instruments, the metal strings, the bow design, all that yeah, as well. Yeah, interesting, yeah. So, that, yeah, so there's a bit of a sort of competition element to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I... We are talking about a situation where the brass band movement held out against this internationalization yeah. longer than anyone else. But what we find with orchestras, and yet, in fact, the uh, we now have recordings th- throughout the 20th century that actually demonstrate this process of different countries having different orchestral sounds mm-hmm. and that becoming much more amalgamated. And l- several different things are uh, blamed that but if it, even if it, if, if it is even a bad thing uh, one of which is recording recording technology itself means that yeah. people are uh, different countries can hear what other countries are doing but yeah i mean the other important th- obvious thing is that the instruments became much more standardized but yeah to talk about the b flat based trombone in particular so we've got a situation where in terms of the global picture we've essentially got France and Germany in the 19th century. And yeah, I mean, Paris was always a powerhouse of instrument design. Uh, I mean, Adolf Sachs in particular, but um, but yeah, going all, all the way through uh, uh, woodwinds and brass in the, in, the, in the 19th century, Paris was a really important place. But well, it's like perhaps there's a stereotype, I don't know, but uh, Germany was always a bit more industrial about it and it was a bit more efficient. And, yeah. <laughs> and the, uh, but yeah, but basically, to generalize a lot, France tends to have narrower bore instruments and Germany tends to have wider bore instruments. Yeah. Um, the B flat uh, F bass trombone and indeed the two valve bass trombone from B flat F and D for the second valve for the sake of argument. Uh, all German designs, and yeah, so the move from an F trombone to a B flat trombone. Oh, just one thing I should just mention as an aside is that uh, what I was saying earlier on about the three trombones being alto, tenor, and bass and being three different sizes. Mm-hmm. 
There was also a move. There was also a trend for orchestral trombone sections to be three, but three B flat instruments. Right. Um, and that was uh, that's said to be more a French thing than a German thing. It's also been demonstrated, I think, that the Viennese premieres of Beethoven's Fifth and Ninth Symphonies had three B flats trombones. Yeah. So we shouldn't generalize too much about this. But anyway, um the B flat F bass trombone wildly successful in Germany at the end of the 19th century and this is when like the Berlin Philharmonic come along and these orchestras get in sort of global status. And this is the design that America picked up and by the mid 20th century we're looking at um con Shires, I think, Reynolds, but Kahn in particular. Uh, these Kahn was supplying the important American orchestras. And the Amer- American orchestras toured to the UK with these uh, B-flat bass from both sections. And yeah, wide bore instruments. They're shiny instruments, you know, but, and also <laughs> being very well played as well. Like the standards of orchestral playing of uh, like the New-, New York Philharmonic in the mid-20s, it's just, you know, it's a different world. So yeah, this is. Uh, I mean, I I wasn't there, but I can understand the, the jealousy of the players. You know, so want, just wanting to do that. You know, it is. It in, in a sense, it is a shame because there is a distinctive sound to uh, the G bass trombone played played well. This is yeah. another thing we could we could talk about. <laughs> this is a whole another conversation. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But I mean, also the um, there's a analogous shift from what we might medium bore tenor trombones to large bore tenor trombones in the same period and yeah it's the same thing essentially um so a narrow bore trombone be it tenor or bass but basically you need more technique you need more diaphragm more more everything to get a big sound out of it if you've got a, a, a wider bore, you yeah, it's making a bigger sound and making more volume is easier. But it's a it's a rounder sound. It doesn't have as much character. It doesn't have as much focus. So yeah, that that's what you lose. The process of that takeover of the B flat bass trombone, the uh, of the the B flat bass trombone coming along, it was again, uh, Boozy and Hawks are the either the heroes or the villains, whichever way you look at it. The British Board of Trade had imposed a an embargo on imports of American musical instruments. The one of the directors of Boozy and Hawks was actually on that board, right. so it was. And as I say, this was a time when Boozy and Hawks had monopoly in this country, you know. So it was basically the we. You can argue that the survival of the G bass trombone, the medium bore tenors, the. Uh, Piston valve, uh, single French horn, all this sort of stuff was kind of engineered for commercial reasons by Boozy and Hawks. But what Boozy and Hawks did in the 50s, and this is something I was able to document through their production records. uh, Oh, yeah, another thing that they have at the Horniman is a lot of um, sketches, a lot of uh, plans, uh, designs, instruments. Boozy and Hawks were able to get hold of several uh, American instruments and copy them. And we've got we've at the Horniman they had they've got technical drawings actually of these American instruments that they that were used as the model. So yeah, basically I think uh, in the early fifties, fifty four rings a bell. That embargo was was lifted, but um, um, Boozy and Hawks uh, Boozy and Hawks were still the dominant factor in all of this. And basically, let's see by by the mid sixties, 
virtually all professional orchestras yeah. were using B-flat instruments. Brass bands were not. Another interesting thing that Boozy and Hawks engineered was the move to low pitch and brass bands. Right, yeah. Basically, they did that by stopping making high-pitched brass instruments. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they don't they don't now, but they, they had the monopoly. They could just do that. Yeah. The move in Boozing Hawks from making G-bass trombones to making B-flat bass trombones was contemporaneous with their sort of forcing the brass band movements into low pitch. It wasn't quite that simple, though, because they uh, even after they'd stopped making high-pitched instruments... They continued to make G-based trombones in low pitch. They were happy to play along with this traditionalism mm. a bit. At the very end, in the 1970s, we see examples of Booting Hawks being commissioned to make a set of trombones for a brass band and sending out four instruments, two tenors, one G-based trombone and one B-flat F-based trombone. But yeah, I mean, by that point, the writing was on the wall. I Why why they even did that, I don't know. But it's, uh, but as I say, it's uh, something that uh, is recorded in those production records. But yeah, the Boozing Hawks were not the... Boozing Hawks were responsible for the change, but they were also responsible for de- delaying the change for quite sure. a long time. Yeah. I thought this would be a good moment to hear a full trombone section, including the G-trombone, in action. We're going to hear the famous solo moments from each member of the trombone section in the CWS Manchester Band, conducted by Alex Mortimer, as they perform the iconic An Epic Symphony in 1961. Apologies in advance for the vinyl crackling. This has been recorded from an LP. Enjoy. So, Gavin, in terms of people using G trombones today, was there a bit of a revival around the G trombone? Are people still? I can I get I know for a fact that there's some G trombone enthusiasts out there. So, are people still using it? So, it's very interesting the way that I mean, when when we talk about um, historical performance, the whole historical performance movement began with. Uh, Renaissance music, essentially, didn't it? And there's been yeah. a, a sort of um, from the sixties onwards, it's been a sort of movement closer and closer to the present day. Um, we can talk about a minor revival of the G-based, <laughs> but yeah. But the interesting thing is that the start of the revival overlapped with the tail end of its original decline. Right. Okay. I came across when I was doing my research 
uh, a few examples of enthusiasts who, uh, yeah, uh, so one guy is in my my article. He's very proud that he'd reintroduced the G-based trombone to the brass band contest stage. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that was a bit of a shock to the sort of yeah. uh, the rest of the band and the audience. I was, I hope he was assessed fairly on that one. Uh, yeah. So I mean, all right. There's so there are a few examples of situations where it just makes sense. So I, the New Queens Hall Orchestra to come across those guys is a it was an orchestra that was uh, founded. I don't think they're running anymore, but their idea was to recreate a. British orchestra from about 1900. Okay. And the the argument there was like I was saying earlier on about how at that time different countries had different orchestral sounds. Well, their idea was to show what the British orchestral sound was like for, say, Elgar symphonies and early Vaughan Williams, that sort of thing. So obviously a G-based trombone there is, uh, yeah, ideal. Douglas Yeo is a very... very um, he was formerly the, the um, bass trombone player of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and he uh, has a very nice uh, GD bass trombone, uh, which in his, in his days pl- played with Boston uh, every time they did Elgar, he would get out. <laughs> but um, but uh, to be honest, I, mine, I haven't spoken to him in years, but my understanding is that he's now retired, he's now retired from the orchestra and is spending his retirement uh, playing Serpents and Ophiclides, which is... Uh, yeah. As you do. As well, you well do. indeed, indeed. But so, I mean, arguably, there's uh, both of those instruments have a role in the early history of the yes, brass bands absolutely. as well, don't they? A future um, podcast, here we go. <laughs> yeah. one, one thing I will say about the revival, such as it is of the bass trombone, is that that overlap between the tail end of the traditionalists and the beginning of the revival the traditionalists tended to play the straight g whereas the revivalists tended to play the gd the the one with the valve and yeah so there's a so-called betty bore trombone this Mm, is a yes it was a boozy and co-design from the 30s and yeah slightly wider board it had this valve and it was it was deluxe you know it was considered the the g-based trombone to have it was uh, marketed for professional orchestral players who I think took care of the thing, you know, and I do know how many they made. I saw, saw the record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, Please um, look at the research. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but a surprising number of them survive. Um, right, yeah. So for the, the specialists who, you know, who take a historical interest in the G-based trombone, those Betty Bore trombones, those those tend to be the ones of most interest. So Yeah. It's, it's interesting that... Um, a lot of historically informed performance for brass is obviously firstly getting a hold of the instruments nowadays is obviously more difficult um but it's usually like smaller brass groups whereas you were saying that, that we had a whole orchestra revival i'm just imagining a whole brass band revival using all these instruments it's i mean we have some recordings but very difficult to do <laughs> so there is one interesting example. Um, it was just a one-off, I think, and it was called the Kaifatha Band. Right. Um, this was in the 1980s, I think, or might be a bit later. And what happened was there's a place called Kaifatha. It's in the valleys. It's near Merthyr yep. Tydfil. And they uh, had a brass band in the 1840s, and it was very well documented what they did, yep. and many of the instruments survived. 
the, in, the reason it was interesting was there weren't very many sax horns. In fact, I don't think there were any sax horns. It was all like offer Clydes and keyed bugles. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, there was a project. Uh, Trevor Herbert, very important trombone historian, yes, was he was instrumental instrumental in this. He um, it wasn't just him, but they um, got together um, original instruments and replicas, and they they did recreate that. But as I say, the that in, that's the point. The whole point of that was that it was a brass band that wasn't sax horns. It was a sort of uh, going off in a different direction to where history actually yeah. led. I mean, generally speaking, the instrumentation of the brass bands had pretty much stabilised by the start of the 20th century, hadn't it? I mean, yeah. we've got the... Yeah, I mean, instruments got bigger. Uh, or what? I mean, they'd be wider bore. Uh, you've got maybe the slide extender mechanisms on your cornets. But I mean, even the uh, Blakely's compensating system on euphoniums and tubers—that was all—that was all in place by like 1900. So, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, a historical brass band would be one with narrow bore instruments, essentially, and a G-based yeah. trombone, of course. Of course, <laughs> I was just thinking um, some of them are modern, modern, more modern test pieces that we have, and for nowadays with brass band, I'm just—I've got visions of somebody trying to play that on a G trombone, and I just again, it would be like it would be comic to watch because of this high handle going all over, you know, all over the place, yeah. trying to play some of this more complicated music. So yeah, maybe not. Who knows? Well, that's not, I, I would say that. Again, um, just looking at the orchestral repertoire, the because the G-based trombone was the instrument, the not even just the instrument of choice, just the instrument in British orchestras in the first half of the 20th century, there are so many important bass trombone parts in British orchestral pieces, and you can see they're written for the G-trombone. G oh, um, the planets. Yeah. So Mars and Jupiter and the planets are just wonderful bass trombone writing. Walton's first symphony, or oh, the Elgar symphonies, some good trombone stuff in that. So. Yeah, I'm sure there'd be obviously a crossover between a uh, composition for brass band writing for the instrument in the sense, writing to the strengths of the instrument um, in terms of writing for G trombone, not writing for our larger B flat. <laughs> well, G flat D cousins there, that we have now, yeah. There, there are a few uh, solo pieces for G bass trombone and brass band. Um, I don't know that they're very adventurous, but the, yeah, there were, um, in the late 19th century, the G bass tromboneists did sometimes stand in front of the brass band. Oh you my know? goodness. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, um, <laughs> But I generally speak, I mean, I can imagine that you, I mean, with the G-based trombone in the ensemble, I can imagine that your valve tubers are going to be so much more versatile, you know, and that essentially just a frustration for arrangers that the uh, sort of clunky long slide of the G-based trombone. And yeah, so I, I mean... I do see the point of progress here. You know, I mean, a B-flat bass trombone is so much quicker, so much more versatile, so much slicker. It's it's essentially solving a problem. You yeah. Know? I mean, I'm not that romantic about the... No, um, that's, <laughs> I mean, so, some people are, and, and yeah, uh, no. but for good for good, for good good reason. Uh, and, and obviously some people moved with the times and we're seeing a slight, you know, some revivalists nowadays as well, so... There is one last uh, thing I need to tell you about. Okay, go uh, for it. Yeah, so I have a, uh, a colleague, I don't know, a, a fellow researcher who may be familiar to you up in Scotland. He's Arnold Myers. Yes, He's absolutely. The, he is, let's see, emer- emeritus professor at Edinburgh University, and he's also is a research associate, I think, at the Conservatoire. Yes. He, uh, I mean, to be honest, I've kind of 
borrowed this research project from him because he is a he's a G bass trombonist to his bones. You know, he's he's been playing the instrument since the 60s. So he's he's one of these people who um bridges the uh right. decline uh and the revival. In fact, I when I what my my article it's called the de- decline of the decline of the G bass trombone uh, over the 1950s to 1980. Oh, I should also mention, just while I'm here, that uh, listeners can access my article if they go to gavindixon.info and click on publications. There's a link to the article there. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it was originally it was going to be called, uh, yeah, it's called The Decline. Originally it was going to be called The Demise of the Base. Oh, trial. my goodness. <laughs> so um, anyway, I sent a draft to Arnold. And he he said, but it hasn't died. What are you talking about? Of course not. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so um, yeah, I said, all right. So it's his suggestion. I changed it to decline. Arnold is, well, he's a brass instrument historian um, of the first order. um, But he's, uh, his real strength is the physics of the instruments and with it the sort of the taxonomy how you can show the evolution just through the surviving examples he has a fantastic collection himself of uh, g-based trombones and every other brass instrument you could imagine the reason i mention it here is that earlier this year he gave a paper at the historic brass society conference in Bern. the title is the british bass trombone in g there we so, go. Um, All encompassing. Well, that isn't published yet, nor have I read it. Um, <gasps> yeah, um, but it's been accepted by the Historic Brass Society and it'll be in their next journal. But I hope, like, when he was writing it, Arnold described this to me as a prequel to my paper. Oh, because, right, okay, well, yeah, here because, we go. Yeah, he's looking at the 19th century the origins. Um, right. And as I, said, I haven't read it, but I so I speculate that he's going to be looking at the surviving instruments and making uh, informed guesses about where it came from and how it was influenced in the early 19th century. So, yeah, when I was saying earlier on about we don't know where it came from uh, and all we've got is hearsay. Well, I might be I might be out of date in this. It might be that this that this paper has all the answers so watch, watch the this space, space. Yeah. yeah i was gonna say i had seen that arnold had done a talk in bird so fingers crossed at the time of this airing of the podcast we will watch this space for arnold's work i'll put a link to his um research page as well as your own gavin mm-hmm. thank you so much for your time i will put links to your website and look at all your work on there but thanks again for your time great thanks for your time helen it's been right. a pleasure If you like the podcast, please help it to grow by liking, sharing, rating and reviewing. You can also support the podcast by leaving a tip or buying a perk, including asking my next guest a question or getting a shout out via Pod Inbox. Link is in the show notes. Every episode, a portion of the ad revenue is donated to an organisation chosen by our guest. This week, it's the Musicians Benevolent Fund. Podcast music is Mephistopheles, performed by the Illinois Brass Band.